Well, we're going to get back to our study, and it's always good to see you folks on Thursday night. It's a wonderful time for a midweek service. Uh, we continue to dialogue with the school and uh, our staff. Uh, we have a wonderful staff, uh, pastors. Some of them are pastors, others are directors, and they're working very diligently to think through having a midweek service at Storm Grove School, the same place we meet Sunday morning. And it takes quite a bit of space for us to provide children's ministry, student ministry, and really we can even open up other classes, other opportunities, maybe a women's ministry class and a men's ministry class, and make a Thursday night a special midweek gathering of the body. It's just kind of exciting when you're pulling in and people are coming and families and kids and adults and we're all coming together in the middle of the week for a picker-upper. And uh, boy, we need that in this world today, don't we? We should come together as often as we can. Don't forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. And I want to thank you for being faithful on Thursday night. And I'm hoping that, it'll, that when we do that, it'll, it'll bring even more folks together and more people out. So, Well, let's uh, start tonight with prayer as we always do. Let's pray for our nation as we have been praying that, that truth will win, that that lies will be exposed, that the truth will stand, because we know it will stand forever. Whether it makes it to America or not, I'm not sure, but I'm praying that way, that, it'll, that we'll wake up as a nation. Father, tonight we come before you, we give thanks for the opportunity to be together again. But we also think about our nation tonight. Uh, we pray that, Lord, uh, this is a, just an odd time. It's a very weird feel to it, Lord, in our nation right now. And uh, many people are in a state of uh, just uncertainty, not knowing what's coming, and others are just really heavy burdened over the effects of a new administration, if that's going to happen. And we know that there's just still a lot of uncertainty. So, Father, we're praying that you would settle our spirits, settle our hearts, that we can trust that you are in control. There's no question about that, that your word stands forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. We hold on to that truth. And Lord, the gospel of Jesus Christ will stand forever as well. And, and to, right now we have a mouth to open to share the good news. One day we will all be face to face with Jesus. We will experience firsthand the gospel and what it is and and what it means to believe. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would just touch and be with those who are having a difficult week, those who are struggling uh, in whatever various way, you know, that you would just be with them. Come near to them. Comfort them, Lord. Strengthen them. And may they turn to you. May they have their eyes uh, on you alone because you're the only one. You're the author and finisher of our faith. You're the one that gets us through from day to day. So we thank you, Lord, for your role in our life as our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, we're going we're to be in Revelation chapter 18 tonight. We're, we're really biting off chapters at a time, and I think we're going to be able to make it through all of chapter 18 tonight. And I'm excited about that. It's a great study. Uh, last week, we were in chapter 17, and we looked at Babylon and the symbolism of Babylon as a religious system, a worldwide, one-world religious system. 
um, various types of beliefs, various types of uh, apostasy that people have bought into. We know that that's all over the earth. It's, it's certainly in America. So many different kinds of religions that people have bought into, all of them offering faith, all of them offering appeasement with God, but all of them are false. And, and so as we move even further towards the end, as we come into the tribulation period, uh, the Bible says that the world religions are going to even be more prominent and that this, this Babylon, this religious system, this false religious system is going to be used by the Antichrist to establish his, his uh, rulership uh, for that three and a half year period. Now, unfortunately, he's going to deal with that religious system halfway in. Uh, he will offer world peace and everybody will buy into that bunk, and then as soon as he offers it, peace, there is no peace. It's war. And he will use the religious system to uh, position himself as a political power that nobody can stop. By the time he gets to the third year, three and a half years in, um, we are going to see him uh, offer up a very unholy sacrifice and in the temple of Jerusalem, and from there, he will announce that he is God. And at that point, he will dismantle the religious system, Babylon, because he no longer needs it. It's interesting. It's not about uh, God having to directly take out the religious system in the end. God has it set up so that the enemy will take out the enemy. <laughs> and you know, that's what they do. It's just like a, it's like a who is it? Is it the black widow that eats her young or... I forget which spider, uh, but that's what they're doing. They're, gonna, they're just going to eat each other up because there's only so much power and nobody wants it more than the Antichrist. And that's Satan's plan anyway, right? So, so that was last week. This week we move into another element of Babylon, another fall. Both of these, 17 and 18, record the preparation for the fall and the actual fall of Babylon. Here we see Babylon not as a religious system, but uh, one of the plausible ways of interpreting this passage in chapter 18 is that Babylon now is symbolic, representative, or a type of uh, the consumerism, the, the commercial system in the world. And where many of us, obviously, if, if you're a believer, I believe you will be raptured before the, the seven-year tribulation. But there will be many many, many, many people who will get saved during the tribulation. And they will not be duped by the religious system of Babylon. But the second one might get them, might get some of them uh, and distract them. And that is the commercialism, the merchants of the world and the money that's going to be made in that period of time. And it will draw. Though Jesus said you cannot, you cannot have two gods you can't. You can't love God and love money or wealth or materialism. And that's what this chapter is about. It's exposing uh, the materialism and it's part of, it's Babylon. It's evil. It's false. It's a false hope. And, you know, everybody has to hope in something. And people today are putting their hope in all the wrong things. But I see many Christians who struggle between being faithful to the Lord and getting, getting caught up 
in making money, materialism, living the best life now. When, when the scripture clearly teaches that this, if this is your best life now, I guess you're going to hell. Honestly, you can't expect to go to heaven if you think this is best. This isn't even close to the best. So our focus is not on trying to get the best life now. Our focus is on being used of God for the purposes of His glory. Amen? So let's get started if we can. Uh, I've, I've kind of set it up this way just to go back through very quickly here. But uh, some scholars will teach that chapter 17 and 18 are the same Babylon. It's not two different Babylons or two different symbols. Uh, I, I believe it is. Uh, but it's interesting here because, under, because there are similarities that would lead somebody to think it's speaking of the same thing. Uh, let me give you some if I can here. Um, both uh, have ruling queens. Both are under the rule of Antichrist. Both are filled with blasphemy. Both hate the saints. Both are shed, uh, have shed the blood of the saints. Both are associated with kings of this earth. And, and, and in fact, the Bible speaks of it as fornication. That, the, 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 that this Babylon, the, the commercial system, the religious system, it's fornicating with the kings of the world and the people of the world. And when it speaks that way, it, you, may, you think sexual immorality. Don't, not first and foremost, think idolatry. That's what it's speaking of when it uses that word. So both leaders of the world and the people of the world will be in bed with an idol. They are worshiping an idol other than God. Uh, so there are a lot of, of similarities. And, and also, both are going to be judged and both are going to be destroyed. We're going to learn about the destruction tonight. But uh, there are also some significant differences. So let me give you the differences between chapter 17, Babylon, and chapter 18, this mystery Babylon, okay? In chapter 17, uh, the symbol that's used for Babylon is a harlot woman, a, a prostitute. That's the symbol. It's not the person. In the end, when, the, when Babylon presents itself, it's not going to be what John described as a woman. It's going to be a, that's a symbol, that's simply a symbol, okay? Uh, another thing about chapter 17, that religious Babylon, is that it's identified with Rome. And Rome, if you know anything about Italy, is inland. It's not on the coast. Uh, it also, the woman, the prostitute, she's also a mother. She's also guilty of religious abominations. And then also she, she, destroyed, uh, she was destroyed by a political power that previous supported her. So that's, that's chapter 17, speaking of that religious Babylon. Now chapter 18, this is a different, these are the differences. Number 18, uh, the symbol is not uh, a harlot or a prostitute. Now the symbol is a great city. And it's identified with a port city, a coastal city. It, the habitation, it's a great city. It has a great marketplace. Probably uh, the center of the economic system of the world. Remember, in that period of time, it's one world government. It's one world economic system, one, one currency for the world. And, and so there, there's, at that point, there probably will be a location 
where most of that comes out of. And then also, uh, it, this, this commercial Babylon is also guilty of greed and self-indulgence, where the religious, was it was abominations. This is more about greed and self-indulgence. And then also, this one's destroyed by a sudden act of God, where last week, the destruction comes from the evil one. So I think it's best to, if you want to figure out, okay, how do I take 17 and 18? What, what, is that, what, what does it look like? I think it's best to see them as unique in themselves, but yet they're interlinked. They're interlinked, okay? Uh, but they remain distinct. They, re, they keep their own unique personality, both 17 and 18. Now, religious Babylon of 17 is judged at the midpoint of the seven-year period of the tribulation. And again, uh, commercial Babylon in chapter 18 is judged at the end of the seven-year period. That's another reason why I can't buy into the concept that they're both speaking of the same thing. Um, and then also, try not to let the broadness of the prophecy uh, of the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament uh, don't, don't allow the broadness of this, the scope of chapter 17 and 18, talking about uh, Babylon and using these very unique terms. And don't let that fool you. Don't think it's too broad. Don't, don't try to think that there's not detail and there's not a specific definitive plan. There is. In fact, even in the Messianic prophecies, there were broad strokes, very broad strokes. Micah said that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem, okay? Hosea said that the Messiah would come out of Egypt. So this broad stroke makes you think, man, this just isn't lining up. Something's not right. Malachi said that the Messiah would come to the temple. Zechariah said that the Messiah would come to Zion. And, and then also, uh, Isaiah said that the Messiah would come to Galilee. So what appears is all this this broad stroke leaves way too many things that are un, they're not coming together. They're not connected. It's not integral. And so if you were to ask the question, which of these prophecies of the Old Testament is actually true? The answer is all of them. They're all looking at different angles. And, and so uh, that's, that's a lot like what we're experiencing with this study on the symbol of Babylon in chapter 17 and 18. So when the vision in Revelation says Babylon is falling, it's very likely that it has a dual meaning, the religious Babylon and the commercial Babylon, okay? And at two different times, the middle of the Great Tribulation and at the end of the Tribulation. This passage is very much in the style of the Old Testament prophets, this chapter and last chapter. Uh, when you think about the oracles of woe, the Old Testament prophets would speak to the people from God. They spoke the word of God. And they, they spoke in oracles. There was the oracle of woe, and then there's the oracle of blessing. And so if the prophet, if you learned that the prophet was coming to your town, Jeremiah, you know, whoever, Isaiah, whichever one, uh, you would get very excited, but you also had a little apprehension because you didn't know if he was coming with a blessing or a woe. And so you'd go to the big, you know, the city gate where the prophet would speak and proclaim the word of God. And if he started out with, uh, blessing are you, blessed are you, 
oh man, everybody wanted to take the prophet to lunch. <laughs> Come to my home, I've killed the fatted calf, we're going to have a wonderful celebration. But if he came and spoke the oracle of woe, woe unto you, uh, they would pick up rocks and try to stone him. They, they did. I mean, honestly, th th this is what a, the life of a prophet was like in the Old Testament. This concept today of the prophet, uh, no relation to the prophets of old. Uh, the prophets today, not a single one of them is speaking a single word that is equal to this. Not a single one. The Old Testament prophet, it was this. Remember what Jesus said? I didn't come to destroy. I came to fulfill the law and the... Jesus just told you that the prophets of old spoke the word of God. Those today who are calling themselves prophets or have been designated as prophets, not the same. Do not be taken... Uh, don't take them literally like the prophets of Old Testament. They're not. Just be careful. And so, so here... Uh, we see uh, this doom that's being announced over these wicked cities. Let me give you two examples. Uh, write this down just for your own personal study. Babylon, it speaks of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13 through 14. Isaiah 13 through 14, and also, and also in Isaiah chapter 21. And then in Jeremiah, it speaks in chapter 50 and 51. So there, it's using Babylon in an oracle of woe. The, the prophets of the Old Testament are speaking of this Babylon that we're studying in Revelation. And they're speaking of it in an oracle of woe. And then the, there's another city that they gave oracles of woe to. That was Tyre, the city of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. And that's spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 26 through 28. So... There, there's a lot of similarity in the style of the writings in chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation with the Old Testament prophecies of, of woe. Now, is Babylon of Revelation 18 a literal or a symbolic city? I mean, we haven't even started our study yet. We're just trying to lay the groundwork. Is it literal or is it symbolic? That's a great question. Some have thought it to be a future rebuilt Babylon on the Euphrates River in the Middle East which is now, by the way, desolate desert of, Iran, of, of uh, Iraq. Um, some leaders in the Middle East in modern day um, spoke of the rebuilding of Babylon. One of them was Saddam Hussein. Uh, unfortunate for him, he never got to see that through. Okay? But there are people who, who, who believe that it will be a future city. Not based on revelation, they just think that Babylon's going to come back. Well, it's not. I don't believe, I, I don't believe that's true. I, I believe it's a symbolic Babylon, not a city. Okay? Just like the religious Babylon in the last chapter. That's not a place, that's not a location, that's a system, a worldly system that we have in this world today. Now, one scholar said, in portraying the destruction of a symbolic city, he describes God's judgment on the great satanic system of evil that has corrupted the earth's history. So this is a big deal, what we're studying tonight. This is a major, major component of the... When, when Paul said, I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceive Eve with his craftiness, that you might also be led astray 
from the simple and pure devotion to Christ, being led astray, being set up, entangled, and duped, and wooed into evil. This, world, this, merchants, this commercial merchant money system in the world is doing that right now to many, and it's even going to uh, have its heyday. Its zenith has yet to come. We're going to see that. We're, we might not see it. The world will see it in the end. Okay? Now, let's get started in verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. I love that. An angel coming down. Listen to what it says. Coming down from heaven, and this angel was glowing. Why? Because the angel just came out of the presence of God. Man, isn't that awesome? Woo! The term there uh, for another um, is uh, the Greek word alon, A-L-L-O-N. It makes it clear that this angel is the same in kind as the angel from Revelation 17 that came announcing the other Babylon, okay? This angel comes down from heaven so fresh from the presence of God, there's a glow about it. The glory of God on this angel. Praise God. See, that's what it should be for the saints when we come together and worship the Lord. That we don't walk out with glory glitter on our shoulders because they, they started the machine that let the glitter fall and made it sound like it was the Holy Spirit. We, we walk out with a glow of the Spirit of God Himself who resides in us. We look different after worship than before worship. Amen? Don't you feel different when you've been with the Lord and you've been in His Word? It just does something in your spirit. And, and you have a peace that you didn't have. You, you have a sense of direction that you didn't have before. There's this unbelievable sense that the Holy Spirit, that the unction of that Spirit is at work in you and He's going to work through you. Yeah. Amen. Good stuff. Well, this angel just came out of the presence of God and he is pumped up, fired up to carry out the will of God. And verse 2, and he called out with a mighty voice, no hesitation, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, Let's break that down. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In Hebrew, repetition is a form of emphasis. Just like bold print in our, in our typing, you would, you would type in bold print to, make an, to, to emphasize a point, or you would type it in caps, uh, or ending a sentence with an exclamation point. In the Hebrew uh, language, they would repeat the word. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Jesus used that a lot, didn't he? And what he's saying is, this is really important. It's all important, but I really want you to get this. So here this angel is using the same concept and saying, fallen, fallen, emphasizing that this world system that people have put their faith and their trust in, they have all their money tied up in money markets and all their money tied up in real estate, and all the cars and the houses and whatever they've accumulated and the money that they're making. And he says, I want you to hear this emphatically, fallen. 
that system that you placed your trust in is gone. It's going to end now. Can you imagine the shock that's going to hit the earth when that happens? Those who have made an idol out of money, an idol out of materialism, they place that in their heart, they worship it, they live for it, they buy a new car, they park that car all the way out by the highway, away from the store, they don't want anybody to bump into it. They worship it, man. Woo! I got to have that new leather smell in my vehicle. And they, they just go after it, and it's gone. That system is gone. Not even the gold that people have will work in that moment. It's not going to work. Okay? So this is really a big deal. Uh, the last part of verse 2, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. This is a sad fate for a once great world system that they were so putting all their stock in. Uh, one scholar said that this is a prophetic picture of absolute desolation where the proud achievements of man become the demonic haunts of unclean and horrible creatures. You put all your stock in this. I remember back living in, in South Florida when in West Palm area they took a section, a large section, I forget how many city blocks that they knocked down. They literally destroyed them. These were homes that were built back in the 30s and the 40s. Uh, and they literally leveled the place. They purchased them all, leveled it, and then they built City Place down in West Palm. And uh, the only thing they kept was an old church that they turned into a, a theater. And, uh, it, you know, they brought in uh, the palm trees. I forget how many different variety of palm tree that you cannot buy in America. They brought them from Italy. They brought them from all over the, the world. And they had the, the paved brick and all the special stone from Italy and other places. It was like that was the big, big deal. Man, look what we have created. We took nothing but an old, you know, part of town that had completely been broken down. And we've created this beautiful thing that everybody can enjoy. That's the picture in a very minute way of what's going to happen on a grand global scale. What, what the world is going to build. And they're going to be so into it. Oh, this is awesome. Life's never been better. It's going to come crumbling down like that. Because everything in this world belongs to God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the gold. He owns all the silver. And God decides what to do with all of it. And he's going to take it out of the hands of the wicked He's going to hand it over to the, those who are behind the wicked, the demonic spirits. It's going to go where it should go because it doesn't matter. God, God's going to have the last say in the thing. And then he says in verse 3, For all nations have drunk. Here's why he's doing it. Because all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Again, when, she, when it speaks of sexual immorality, it's not speaking literally of a physical sexual encounter. It's more seen as an idolatrous type of encounter, okay? And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from her power, from the power of her luxurious living. 
So everybody's attached to it. Remember back when Amway first came out and it started building steam and everybody in all the churches wanted Amway. Oh, we're going to sell Amway. And they filled up their attics and their basements with all their stock of Amway. And then, of course, five years later, they, what are we doing with all this stuff that's been stored away that we never sold? Um, it's kind of like that. Everybody wants a piece of the pie. And many are going to get into it, and they're going to get into it for one reason, for selfish reasons. I want more. I want a better life. I want to have a nicer car. I want to live in a bigger home. I want to, I want, I want, I want. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> and God's going to say, okay, let me, let me give you, as a spoiled brat, a spanking. And boy, is he going to spank him hard. My goodness. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people lest you share in her sins. It's inconceivable that a child of God could be part of a religious Babylon. But I got to tell you, uh, because those, those, those effects are so creepy, they're so obvious. But this Babylon that's about materialism and money, oh, many Christians are, are tempted and tainted by it. It's, it's, it's stolen part of our heart. And so it's not going to be as easy. The materialistic lure, it's a constant threat that you and I must guard ourselves against. I'm just going to tell you, I don't know what you have. I don't know how much you have. I don't know what you own, but I'm telling you right now, do not have a tight fist on that stuff. That's right, it's God's. And in the end, he's going to prove that it's his. There's nothing wrong with having a savings. There's nothing wrong with a retirement or a pension fund. There's nothing wrong with those things. But if it's holding your heart where your life without it is misery, that you don't see how you could make it if you didn't have, you are in danger. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness then all those things that you need will be added to you. Don't seek the things. Not ahead of the Lord. Be so careful here, church. Verse 4, lest you share in her plagues. That's an interesting thing in verse 4. The warning here is focused towards saints who are in the position like Lot was in while he lived in the city of Sodom. Think about that. That's Genesis chapter 19 if you're a Bible student taking notes tonight. It's God's people being in a place they shouldn't be, a place ripe for destruction. There's some places you need to avoid, some positions, some postures that you need to avoid because they set you up for destruction. If you own your business, wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. But boy, don't ever let the business own you. Keep it in perspective. You're not here on this earth. I, I know this is going to go against what so many of people today think and what the way they believe. You are not here on this earth to make money. You can either work to live or live to work. I choose to work to live. You've got to have money to eat. You've got to have money to pay the bills. I understand that. But when money becomes your God and you live for it, 
and that's your reason for getting up. That's what excites you. I know uh, some people who they own uh, a great deal of wealth, and they'll tell you, they'll just come right out and say to you, it's not that I want all the money. It's not that I am like, like greedy for the money. I just like making it. I get a thrill making money. You get more of a thrill with money than God? See, the purpose of our, of our existence here is to do God's will, first and foremost, to be a witness every day for Jesus Christ, to shine like a bright light, to talk and walk like salt. We enhance the flavors around us. We, we are a preservative in a rotting, decaying world. Amen? Don't let anything keep you from that mission, from that calling of God. The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The great commission, go into the world, preach the gospel. Teach them everything that I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's what we're here on this earth for. The great commission and the great commandment. Not for the great money. Not for the great job. Not for the great title. Not for the great position. Those things come as you are focused on God. He'll lift you where He wants you to be. The Bible says, the Lord gives the increase. But a lot of people don't know that because they've never slowed down and stopped long enough for God to do His work. They go out and get their own increase. Well, now you've made your bed, He's going to let you sleep in it. That's what He's saying here. This is what it looks like to sleep in the bed of money and material goods. I'm not saying that if you have it, that there's something wrong. Just don't let it rule you. That's what we're talking about here. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. This, this theme is, is, is presented throughout the Bible. It's repeated frequently in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Let me give you some passages. Write these down. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 11. Isaiah 52, 11. I'll let you write it down. It says, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Here's another one. Jeremiah 58, verse 8. I'm sorry, Jeremiah verse, uh, chapter 50, verse 8. Flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be as male goats before the flock. Get away from Babylon. And of course, here in the Revelation, Babylon is not a location. It is a symbolism of money and material goods. Get away. Don't let it capture you. Don't let it entangle you. Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 45. Go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. How do you save your life from the anger of the Lord? You don't let the things that God made or created replace God, the Creator, in your heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 16. Let me say that one again. 2 Corinthians 6. 14 through 16, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership 
has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Verse 16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God spoke that to Israel, His chosen, holy, and dearly loved in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, He's not walking, uh, he's not walking among us. He is in us. Therefore, we should not let anything else in where God is. Nothing should reside with God. You don't, there's not a thing you own, including your home, that should be more important or equal to God in your life. You say, well, how do I know? Well, if the economic system blows up and somehow somebody comes and riots and takes your home, you will still have the righteousness, the peace, and the joy of the Holy Spirit even though you've lost that possession. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not going to say you're going to, woo, this is awesome. I lost my house. No, but there is an abiding presence of God and a confidence of God in you, and you go forward and you stay on point and on mission for God regardless of what's taken from you. You don't allow the enemy to have root where now all of a sudden you're living for things, you're living for possessions, you're living for money, you're living for your bank account or your retirement fund. God help us. It says this, for her sins are... Or, or, here, let me give you one more passage. Ephesians, write this one down. Ephesians 5.11. Paul said, take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, but instead expose them. Why would Christians be persecuted? Because we lovingly share the truth with people who are taken by lies. If you really love somebody, you tell them that, hey, you, do you understand you're being taken? <laughs> I'm trying to help you here. They might hate you for that, but that's okay. Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. And, ha and God has remembered, listen to this, or I'm sorry, ver verse 5, for her sins are heaped high as heaven. Her sins are heaped high as heaven. The sins of commercial Babylon have piled up like a tower, like the Tower of Babel. And God has remembered her iniquities. God's remembered her iniquity. This is the destiny of the materialistic world, but towards believers, God says, I will remember their sins no more. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. I will remember the believer's sin no more. But as, as, as it goes for Babylon, I'll remember every sin. And I, I will pour out my anger on Babylon. Verse 6, pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Wow. He said, pay her back as she herself has paid back others. The word for render here is translated pay back. I'm going to render back. I'm going to repay. Pay back in the ESV. It's ancient Greek word, and it means literally to pay a debt. It means to give back that which is due. 
So here's what it means. God will give back to Babylon exactly what she gave others, only He's going to give her a double portion of her own medicine. You know, there's times where somebody commits an evil, uh, just atrocious sin against another human being, maybe against a child. And often I've thought, wonder if it would be right to go ahead and treat them the way they treated that child. I know in some countries, when I would travel to Haiti and places like this, you'd see people walking around with a nub, no, no hand because they stole. So they took their hand off. That would keep you from stealing. And you only got one left. So you kind of maybe look for a new occupation. Um, God says, I'm going to pay back exactly what you paid others. This is a very serious thing. Verse 6, and repay her double for her deeds. Double restitution was required in the Old Testament in cases of theft. Isn't that interesting? Exodus 22, if you want to look it up, Exodus 22, verses uh, 4 through 9. So this reveals how Babylon made her wealth. How did she make her wealth? How did she, and what is she going to get paid back with? She stole it. She was a thief. She charged more interest than she should have. She, she ripped people off. Now God says, I'm going to rip you off. So now the thief gets thieved. By God, praise God. Verse 7, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, the opposite, see? Instead of, instead of glory, glorifying herself and living in luxury, she's going to be tormented and, and she's going to be in mourning. Since her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Oh my goodness. You just spoke your own judgment. The very things you said that you'll never experience are now going to be yours. This passage speaks of a three, sin, uh, three sins of commercial Babylon. Number one, write these down. Three sins that, that commercial Babylon has committed before God. The first one, self-indulgence. She's living in luxury. Self-indulgence. Number two, pride glorified herself the scripture says here she sits as a queen it's pride thirdly avoidance of suffering she said i am no widow and mourning shall i never see three sins self-indulgence pride and avoidance of suffering how many does that not sound like the prosperity gospel message that is preached in churches today that's what they come against they want you to not, they want you to live in luxury. They want you to glorify yourself. You can have your best life now. They want you to avoid suffering. God has a better way for you. Those are the very things that God has raised his anger and wrath against. We should experience suffering. What makes us think we're so special? Jesus suffered. The disciples suffered. The early church suffered. The founders of the modern Protestantism suffered in the Middle Ages. Who do we think we are? 
If you're a Christian, you ought to have some suffering going on in your life. The Bible, last time I read it, said many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's what it says. Many are the afflictions, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. See, even though we suffer, yet that's not the end. So don't run from suffering. It could be that God ordered it up. And He's going to teach you and grow you and build your faith as you go through it. Why would you avoid that? That's not smart. Let God do His work, amen? For this reason, verse 8, her plagues will come in a single day. Wow. Her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. There you go. The plague of death, the plague of mourning, and the plague of famine. And she will be burned up with fire in a single day. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Oh, wow. <laughs> She's going to be completely consumed with fire. The destruction of commercial Babylon will come suddenly with completeness. Completeness. This is not going to be a, a fade away over time or just a, you know, a, a constant drift that leads a little less and less and less until there's hardly any. No, this is a go from here, the very pinnacle, to the very bottom where there's nothing left. Verse 9, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will stand far off in fear of her torment. Now, why are they weeping and wailing? That's how they made their money. They sucked off of her teat. And now, all of a sudden, she's gone. How are we going to make it? We just, man, I was, the money was rolling. Now it just stopped. It was shut off like you take a spigot and turn the, it's off. And it says, and then they, they stood far off in fear of her torment. Don't necessarily think that the reason that they stood far off is because they were going to be tormented. Those are two separate things. They stood far off. Why? She's burning. <laughs> Don't get anywhere around that. It'll scorch you too. And then secondly, uh, there was great fear. They thought she would respond, that she would, she would lash out. She didn't. She fell silent. Just like Aaron fell silent when his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who were priests of the Lord, walked into the holy place and lit an unholy fire before the Lord. I don't even have a clue what that means. I don't think it means that they were into pornography while they were in the holy place and did, did their, perform their duty of lighting the incense. I think it means something like they disregarded the holiness of God as they lit the incense. And God, poof, both of them, two priests of Aaron, they died on the spot. Aaron goes to Moses, livid. Why would God do that? These were my sons. These were good boys. These were priests of the Most High. And Moses' response to Aaron was, did God not tell us 
that when we enter His presence, He is holy. And it says that Aaron fell silent. Nothing to say. God's right in that judgment. And God's right in this judgment. And nobody will say anything. Not the one that's being judged. She slept with lesser kings who profited from her excesses. And now they're all stunned at her rapid demise. Two distinct reactions are visible to the seer. First, if you think about this, they will weep and wail for her as they lament the fall of commercial Babylon with whom they have prospered. Secondly, terror is going to sweep these kings as they watch in torment. The word in the, in the Greek is a word that signals the general upheaval and the torment of the great city. Verse 10, And say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. She might have slept with lesser kings that she was able to control and manipulate, but in the end she will come to face to face with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and swift will be her destruction. So she had control in manipulating the kings to fornicate with her, worship her as an idol. But in the end, God is the one who she has to deal with. She can't manipulate God. Uh, what, what we see here is dread, and then we see destruction. When, whenever you, in the Bible, see dread and then destruction, it's too late. There's no grace. Dread, destruction. Dread destruction. Let me give you an example. Dread destruction looks like this. It's uh, Noah with seven of his family members starting to close the door on an ark as the waters begin to deluge unlike anything we've ever seen and springs bust open in the ocean floor and come up, water from above and water from below, and literally lifting that ark off of the dry land. That's dread. That is destruction. This is what it will be like in the end, at the end of tribulation. Dread and destruction. It's too late. There is no grace. It's done. I don't know what that does to you, but I'll tell you, in my heart, and this whole book of Revelation, all of this, it just so compels me to want to share Christ with people. I walk around. I don't have any with me tonight because I came from my home. I knew I was coming here. I wasn't going to go out to a restaurant or see people from the community tonight. But I normally carry in my back right pocket, I carry that, a stack of my invitations to, to our church. But I don't like most of the time to just lay it down with my, with my tip and walk out. Most of the time, I set it down before the bill comes. And as the person comes with the bill, I say, you ever heard of that place? 
And they look at it, no. And it opens a door for conversation. Do you go to church anywhere? Are you a believer? The door is open. Now the opportunity can take place. See, the, the, the desire in my heart to do that comes from this book, knowing what's coming for my waitress, for my waiter, if they don't know the Lord. And it's not good enough to say, well, I just don't know. Maybe, maybe they're saved. That's not good enough, folks. God's not going to give you a pass on that. God wants us to find out where they are. He wants us to care enough to talk to them about Jesus and then invite them into a relationship with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the difference between being a Christian who simply goes to church so that they can receive me, 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 selfish, and a Christian who's working for the Father. You were saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of yourself, lest any man would boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, before man existed, that we would walk in them. That's why you're here, to do the will of the Father. That's why Jesus told His disciples, when you pray, you pray in this manner, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, today, let Your kingdom come to this earth in my sphere of influence through me. Use me. I'm just a conduit. You use me to bring Your gospel to people that they might be saved. I'm just the hoe, man. You do the hoeing, but I'm just the tool in your hand. Use me. That's what the Christian life is for in this world. Christian life is never for you to take the hoe, throw it down, go get in some luxury car and just cruise around and then go to church and get more and more and more like some kind of a, you know, somebody who's just sucking the life out of whatever. Like a somebody who just lives for the buffet, you know? Every day, let me go to the buffet. And they just put it in, man, just pile it in. And they do nothing except go back home and just sit there so stuffed they can't even move. A lot of Christians like that. Or Christians who come to church and all they want to do is suck the life out of the church. They're, com they're consumers. All they're good for is consuming. They have no concept of communing with God. And so they sit there in their chair and if the music's not exactly what they wanted, well, I'm going somewhere else. I'll find a place that has music the way I like it. You just revealed that you're, a, that you're basically a consumer. That's all you're doing. It'd be like changing from Walmart to Target or to whatever store. You find the one that gives you what you want. It ain't about you. It's not about me. It's not about us getting what we want. We go to church to receive so that we can leave and give out. We're not hooked up, you know, go in, sit down in your chair. They, they hook you up with the, the tubes, and now you just... <laughs> the life out of the service. Take all the energy so you can go home and lay on your... Oh, that was such a good sermon today. Boy, I like that preacher. Boy, honey, turn that TV on. Let's get that other preacher on there. I like him too. 
That's the Bible Belt. That ain't God. That's not the church. We're here to give, not to get. Amen? The reason we get is so we can give. Give it away. God help us <laughs> to be His people every day, living for Him, serving others, loving people, sharing the good news. That's what it's about. Where are we? <laughs> and the merchant of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, not just flour, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots. The long list needs no explanation except that these are all luxuries, not necessities. That means the mourning is rooted in the self-interest of the merchant. Why? Because no one buys their merchandise anymore. They're stuck with it. God has taken out the whole system. These merchants now find themselves weeping and mourning over the loss of Babylon because the end of Babylon means that there's no global economic system to support the businesses that they've made a lot of money on. Economic chaos creates incredible stress in any social order, anywhere. Verse 13, and slaves, that is human souls. Look at that. They not, not only did they sell items, they sold people. Slave trade, by the way, human slave trade is alive and well today. It is rampant today. Why would it grow? You'd think that with civilization becoming more refined, we're more educated, certainly we would stop doing something so Neanderthal. I'll tell you why. Because in the heart of man is wickedness and evil. And that never goes away. And so man in his insatiable thirst to control, to manipulate, to own, even treats human beings like cattle. I went to a conference in Miami with my daughter Andy. We spent two days. We heard 16 preachers preach over a two-day period. I mean they preached. I mean 45 to an hour. A couple of them, I wondered if they were real preachers or not, the way they presented themselves. One of the two just was announced that he has been taken out of his pulpit for immorality. But there were many that were there that were awesome. One in particular, Franklin Graham was there. There was a, a pastor from California that was there. All these guys got up, got out, and I mean, they just talked and just walked and talked and looked like they were somebody important. This one pastor from California gets up, goes to the mic, and uh, his background, his family owns a, 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 a surfboard company. They make surfboards. And he, he walked away from that to be a pastor. And uh, he got up and he said, hey, take your Bible out. Turn to such and such. And for the next 45 minutes, he just taught verse by verse. 
We're talking about the Miami, uh, the, on the campus of the University of Miami, the arena that they had there, and it was packed with, with young people. And uh, he just taught verse by verse. You could hear a pin drop in the room. People who say, oh, young people today, they got to have all the five senses active. You know, the reticular, reticular activating system at the base of the brainstem, it can only hold in so much information at one time. The activity, it, it zeroes in and you can't go too long. He went 45 to an hour and just taught verse by verse and those kids were hanging on every word because it was life. It was truth. And I heard those guys preach and, and uh, I could tell the difference between the self-interested ones and the ones who had God's interest in heart. Big difference. And I'm thankful for that experience because I was able with, with my daughter to get a picture of the church today. That the church is made up of those who are on fire, white, hot for God, and then there's others who have drifted away from the message of truth and they've made other messages more important. And I, I think we need to be very careful that we never let, listen, let me tell you, I'm going to say this. Vero Bible Fellowship is not about Greg Semstrat. It never has been. I did not start this church. God himself started this church. This church is not built on the personality of a pastor. We have, we set this church up as a plurality of elders. I am one of the elders. The only sense that I'm a lead pastor is that I'm the primary Bible teacher of the church. But well, you need to hear this. All spiritual decisions of this flock are made by a team of spiritual leaders. Every one of the elders is a pastor. In the, in the Greek language, in the New Testament, if you're an elder, you're a pastor. If you're a pastor, you're an elder. If you're an overseer, you're a pastor. They're just as much a pastor as I am. They make the decisions along with me. We all do it together. I don't hold authority over them. They can correct me if I need to be corrected. They, can hold, they do hold me accountable as a lead pastor. But this church is not about the lead pastor. Please understand that. I hope I'm here for 20 years. I'd love that, man. That'd be, I'd be hitting my 80s, man, you know, just hanging out with you folks and loving the Lord and doing whatever I can. I might, but at that point, you probably just have me sweeping the floors and trying to be a witness to the saints in the church. I don't care what the role is. I want to be part of God's church. But let me tell you something. If the Lord takes me out tomorrow, this church should go on. If it's built on a man, it's dead while it lives. See, that's what we have to know as we think about Revelation. We think about what God's doing as He's cleaning up. He's, he's shaking the tree. And He's allowing that which is formed out of the heart from sin and evil to literally fall apart. And He's calling people out of that nonsense and into His light. We as a church, I believe God shakes churches. I believe the Bible says that Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. We can talk all day long about this being evil, that being evil, and we're wanting God to bring justice. You need to know when God brings justice, He's going to start with us. 
And so the church doesn't exist on a man. The church exists because there are people in that church who are truly called out by God, the Greek word ekklesia, called out of darkness into His light, not the light of some preacher. And so you stay with God, no matter who the man is. You stay with God. Amen? Amen. And you stay committed to one another. I'm not trying to preach my demise. I'm, I'm saying I want to be here too, but I, I don't want to pastor a single day a congregation that thinks that it's about you know, that I'm here, that's why, this is, that's why I go. God help us. We're not a church if that's going on. It's got to be you and God. Amen? I'm sorry to labor that point, but I'm just telling you, we can make it about so many different things. And here he's taking all these things that they were holding on to and selling, and he's saying none of that stuff matters now. We saw, when we were down in Miami, we saw a, uh, a, they had set up um, four cargo containers. You know the big steel cargo containers that are on ships, the cargo ships that go all over the place in the ocean? Um, they had four of them, and they were backed up to each, each one backed up to the next. You walked in the first one, and they had it set up exactly the way those who smuggle human beings out of America. The, the drug trafficking is one thing, but the sex trafficking of, of slaves is unbelievable. They will take young girls from our nation, and the first experience they have is that after they've been abducted is they end up on a cargo container inside of it, and it's got a bed, and that's it. And those who are on that ship, those who are part of it, go in there and repeatedly rape that girl. A girl who was with her family the night before, and now she's on a cargo ship and she's being abused and molested continuously to break her down psychologically, where she doesn't think she's valued at all. And then the next ship, you, a cargo container you walk in, and each one had another phase of how they Prepare these girls so that by the time they land wherever they're going, these girls are ready to go out. And, uh, and this, is, this is the world. This is the system that God's going to completely annihilate because He is angry over it. He's storing up His wrath against this. We should be so much part of the, the solution, so much part of the righteousness of God, communicating with people, loving people, caring for people. We should be the opposite as a church. We should not be about ourselves. No church should be about itself. A church ought to be focused on others. There's a balance. It's like a teeter-totter. Half of the church is focused on caring for one another in the church. The other half is reaching outside the church to people who are lost. A healthy church does both. An unhealthy church looks like this. It's all about us, man. We got our, you know, our four and no more. I don't want that church to go to two services because if it goes to two services, I won't know everybody. Who's that about? When a church is here, while we love one another, we fellowship, we see the value of that, we come together, and we want to care for each other and pray for each other and serve each other, 
but we also see the value, the equal value of going out into the community and sharing Christ, inviting people through the gospel to know God, and then inviting them to our church. It's a two-way street, folks. A healthy Christian does both, the great commandment and the great commission. Verse 14, the fruit, of, fruit for which your soul long has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Talk about putting an ending date on it. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth, excuse me, let me take a drink. You ever get that little itch in your throat? And you know what's coming next. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Sound familiar? Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. Wow. Those who live for the luxuries of commercial Babylon will be tormented throughout eternity because of the absence of those luxuries. That's what hell is. Hell is the, is the absence of that which you yearn for, that you lust after. You're going to have a greater lust for whatever it is that you lusted on earth for, and yet you'll, have, you'll never be able to fulfill it, ever. Verse 17, And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Again, understand the sorrow, the grief that they're having over the loss of wealth. We're not talking about human life. We're talking about material things, money. They're grieving, they're wounded, they're mourning over the loss of money. Verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. That's interesting. Should God's people rejoice when judgment comes? Yes. But listen, we don't rejoice over the condemnation of human beings. We rejoice in judgment over the fact that our God is being just. In other words, our God is being God. That's your rejoice. It's not that people are going to hell. Nobody, Jesus even you know, made it pretty clear that that's not what it's about. He doesn't wish that any would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. So it's not rejoicing over the people that are being condemned. It's rejoicing over the fact that God is being just in what He's doing. Then a mighty angel took up, verse 21, took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down in, with violence and will be found no more. That's a fulfillment, by the way, of prophecy. Take your Bible quickly with me, Jeremiah chapter 51. Just turn there quickly, Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah is prophesying regarding Babylon. And in chapter 51, verse 61, quite a long chapter, Jeremiah 51, 61. 
It says, And Jeremiah said to Sarah, When you come to Babel and see that you read all these words, <coughs> and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off, so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. Boy, the very thing that's being prophesied by Jeremiah is exactly what Revelation, what God showed John happening to Babylon. Verse 63, when you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates. And thus, uh, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. But it also reminds us what Jesus said. Turn in your Bible now to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, pick it up at verse 6. Jesus said, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That applies to Babylon, what Jesus said there in, in Matthew 18. Because she led others into sin. It's a terrible thing to sin. Okay? It's even a worse thing, a dreadful thing, to lead others into sin. Jesus said you'd be better off having a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in the depths of the sea. You don't want to lead people into sin. So this applies to Babylon in Revelation 18 because she led others into sin. Someday the world system is going to pass away like a great stone falls to the bottom of the sea. That's how quick she's going to be gone. We're finishing it up here. What will the fallout be for you and I, those who are on the earth at that time? Uh, if we're not raptured, we'll be here. Uh, you're going to only be hurt to the extent that we invest ourselves in the mentality of commercial Babylon's materialism and worldliness. So you're going to lose things when that happens. But it's because your heart's not given to those things, you're going to make it. You're going to keep your eyes on Jesus. There will be people on the earth who will keep their eyes on Christ, right? Verse 20, let's finish this up. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So God's going to his retribution for what she did to you. Those who, those who are going to be persecute, persecuted and die, God's going to bring back restitution. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, uh, will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of, bri of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. So that's a direct word to Babylon that uh, everything that you did to keep the system up I'm going to take you out and all the, them as well. In graphic, poetic language, that's John describing for you and I how the industry and the commerce of Babylon will come to an end. Verse 23, And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. By the way, sorcery in the Greek 
is pharmakia, which we use, and it means to prepare drugs. Okay? The lure of commercial Babylon is like a drug addict fed by deceptive advertising. And God's going to call her out on it. Verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. The extent of this charge is an indication that the great city is symbolic of the world system at large. There's no literal city that it's referring to, okay? God takes the persecution of His people as a personal offense. God's gonna re, he's going to bring restitution to His people. When somebody attacks you and persecutes you for being faithful to God, God will handle that. Okay? God takes it personal because they're not really coming after you. They're coming after what you represent, who? Jesus Christ. God will handle them. Now, you shouldn't walk around going, when somebody rejects, well, you've got yours coming. Okay, you should still pray for them and try to reach them. Because you're not the judge, right? We're not going to condemn them. We want to believe that even though they, didn't, they rejected us and laughed at us and mocked and ridiculed us, that we laid some seed and somebody else will come along and water that seed. Somebody else will come along and plow that seed you know, for, or prepare the soil. So everybody plays a part. We're hoping the goal is not condemnation of the world. The, the goal is that the world would be saved. Amen? We play no part in judgment of the world that way. That's God's business. We do everything we can to save them from the judgment. Amen? And the only way to save them is through the gospel. You can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. But God can save them. Amen. Friends, it's been good tonight to be with you. And it's good to be in the Word, is it not? And so let's, let's uh, close in prayer and let's remember that our God is an awesome God. And He rules and He reigns and, and nobody can ever take Him out of that position. And we are safe and secure in His plan. Father, I just want to thank You that You're sovereign. And that this whole thing playing out in Revelation is according to Your plan. Everything will happen just as you have ordered it up. I pray, Lord, that we would see our lives that way. That everything in our life has already been pre-ordered by God. We just need to be faithful to walk in it and trust you for, for everything. And know that when trouble comes, you probably are allowing it to happen because that's what causes us to continue to grow, to strengthen our faith. And so, Lord, do the work in us. May we be found faithful in Jesus' name. Amen.